There are moments in the story of London that are simply, in my opinion, amazing. Like genuinely unbelievable incidents of great excitement and fast-moving events. This episode is about one of those moments. It's about a few months in the story of London, where the city found itself in the depths of despair and was able to, by year-end, lift itself up and line its pockets greedily. But to understand what happened in London in 1141, we have to understand what was going on away from London. England was entering an era called the Anarchy, where a long and vicious civil war was erupting, and the nation was to become a failed state in all but name. And while last episode I happily spent a long time talking about the affairs of the sheriffs and the bishops of London, the comings and goings and personal relations of the city's oligarchs, this episode is going to be about what was going on elsewhere, and then how this impacted upon London, and how London impacted upon it right back. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'm your narrator, host, and guide to this the story of london a weekly podcast dedicated to telling the fascinating history of this mighty metropolis we have reached the year 1141 and i kind of need to explain the full context of one of the most exciting years in the narrative of this great city and the first chapter since chapter 48 where we dedicate an entire episode to a single year get comfy and welcome then to the tale of the empress and the Bells of London. So, while the story of London focused last episode on all those powerful oligarchs off the city, the rest of the country was busy dealing with having a new king, Stephen of Bois. So, when we last looked at the story of Stephen, two chapters ago, he had come to London. The citizens had declared him king. From there, he travelled to Winchester, where his younger brother, Bishop Henry of Winchester, was in charge and gained the support of Winchester, and with the dual support of the two most important towns in England, both of which Stephen seems to have gained by offering both commune status, he was then crown king in Westminster. All rightful, legit, and above board. So, what went wrong? Well, first of all, like all new kings of England, Stephen faced a period of immediate violence. New kings always seemed to face periods of immediate violence when they took the throne. Why was this? Well, sometimes you had men who were deeply unhappy with their prevailing conditions under the previous king, and they decided to chance everything against an unproven new regime. And the same could be said with foreign powers, who would see a new ruler as a chance to test the resolve of the nation. And as such, Stephen of Bois, King of England, faced violence immediately. There were a couple of rebellions, mostly over in the West Country, and he put them down smartly, Stephen acting like a standard King of England here, moving with alacrity to crush any possible dissent within his new realm. Meanwhile, King David of Scotland then launched a huge raid upon England all the way back in 1135, quickly taking places like Carlisle and Newcastle, and had placed Durham under siege. 
Stephen had responded fast. He led a huge army north, and the Scots had balked at the size of it and retreated, coming to terms with the new English king. Stephen showed generosity towards the Scots. He granted a couple of towns they had taken to become the possessions of Prince Henry, King David's son, and he invited Henry to become a companion. Prince Henry of Scotland did indeed do so, joining him at court in London, but King David believed his son and himself were insulted by the nobles who were present, so he recalled his son and began a series of border raids. In 1138, on the third of these, it seemed especially vicious, and contemporary writings are filled with lurid tales of the rapine of innocent virgins and respectable matrons, children's bodies being stuck on spikes and other nasty Scottish atrocities. During this third raid, an army was raised in Yorkshire to deal with them, and King Stephen sent a force of heavily armed knights to help. The English army massed around a large cart with a pole in the middle of it, an Italian style of cart, called a caraccio. The English attached to this pole the banners of the northern churches of England, and a silver pyx containing the sacred Eucharist was placed on top of the pole, creating a most iconic standard, around which the zealous forces of the English slaughtered the Scottish raiders in one of the era's most iconic and cinematic battles. It was, however, over in Normandy that the new king's regime was to face the most instability to begin with. Stephen had spent his first year or so focusing and stabilising England, which was a prudent thing to do. And while his older brother had been initially offered the title of Duke of Normandy, the local Norman nobles had quickly jumped onto Team Stephen based on his success in England, and this created a dilemma. Normandy, you see, suffered much more from the chaos caused by the death of Henry I than England ever did. It was, in a word, carnage. What didn't help was that Henry's legitimate daughter, Matilda, and her by now 20-year-old husband, Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, had commenced military campaigns upon southern Normandy in the build-up to King Henry's death. And now, with him dead, Geoffrey unleashed a large invasion of Normandy in 1136, working alongside other southern regional French nobility, such as William, Duke of Aquitaine. A 13-day lightning campaign followed, but it did not go exactly to Geoffrey's plan. He was seriously injured when a javelin pierced his right foot, and as such he decided to lead his men on an organised retreat back. Soon afterwards, well, in the words of Odoric Vitalis, quote, As a result of carelessly devouring uncooked food after desecrating consecrated buildings, by God's judgment, almost all suffered from dysentery. Plagued by diarrhoea, they left a trail of filth behind, and many were barely capable of dragging themselves back home, unquote. Gee, how grim medieval warfare is. Normandy's troubles didn't end as 1137 saw a widespread drought and water shortage, and it was in March that year that King Stephen finally launched his own pacification campaign of the region, supplemented by a large force of Flemish mercenaries. What helped Stephen was one of Geoffrey's core southern allies, William of Aquitaine, decided to do something very personal that constitutes a minor footnote in history, but as this was to have a surprisingly large impact upon the story of London and England in the future, I'm going to mention it. Duke William arranged to marry his daughter Eleanor to Louis Lejeune, the son and heir of King Louis VI of France, 
before Duke William went off on a pilgrimage to Santiago de la Compostela, where he died and Geoffrey lost one of his most important allies. Stephen consolidated his hold over Normandy, met with King Louis of France, agreed that Stephen's son Eustace should swear allegiance to the French king to become named Duke of Normandy, with Stephen recognised as his sovereign. Stephen's successes, however, were undone by intense rivalries between his Norman forces and his Flemish mercenaries, which led to armed fights between the two camps and men being killed, and Stephen had to hastily curtail his ambition to go after the threat from Geoffrey and Matilda. He ended up negotiating a three-year truce. Still, he seemed to be doing well. After all, in 1137, King Louis VI of France died, and his mild-mannered son, Louis VII, became king, under the tutelage of none other than Stephen's brother, Theobald. However, while on the surface it seemed unlikely that King Stephen faced any serious threat to him, or that Matilda had any chance of claiming the throne, that three-year truce meant she still had room to wriggle, and the situation changed when Robert of Gloucester decided to stand against the new king. If you remember, I mentioned Robert a few chapters ago. He was Henry I's oldest surviving illegitimate son. He'd been unusually close to his father and had risen alongside Stephen as one of Henry's principal loyalists. Robert of Gloucester decided that Stephen being on the throne was too much and so raised his banner of rebellion. He helped bring about a small alliance of others, and there seems to have been a quiet conspiracy going on, with Matilda, the late king's legitimate daughter, Roger, her half-brother and powerful lord in the West Country, and others, all secretly planning to get Matilda to England, and deals were made so that any nobles who had ground to object to Stephen holding the throne could flock to her banner. Of course, Stephen was not without significant aid and men of his own. His principal military leader was a man called William of Yeeps, who was Earl of Kent in all but name. He also had the Beaumont family and, of course, his own brother, Henry, Bishop of Winchester. However, Stephen and Henry were experiencing some difficulties in their relationship, and it stems from, well, blind ambition. The Archbishop of Canterbury had died in 1136, and Bishop Henry had wanted the post. But what with the schism taking place in Rome, which I mentioned last chapter, Stephen guessed that electing his brother to the Archbishop of Canterbury position would have probably caused a bit of an outcry, as it was in 1139 when the schism in Rome was over. In Westminster Cathedral, one Theobald, the abbot of Beck, was duly elected Archbishop of Canterbury, while the king's brother, Henry, was located nearby at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The election and consecration of the new Archbishop of Canterbury was all legal and above board, yet stewing in London's main church, it does appear that Henry resented his brother for this, an incident that may explain some of what was to follow. And then finally, in 1139, in dubious and still debated circumstances, King Stephen made the most bold political move of his reign. The administration of King Henry I, you see, had been dominated by three core nobles. Stephen of Bois himself, Roger of Gloucester, who I just described, and a final man, Roger, the Bishop of Salisbury. 
Bishop Roger had become the core member of Henry I's regime towards the end of his life and had virtually taken over the running of the nation on behalf of the old king along with the bishops of Eli and Lincoln. Now, if I was to say that the principal government officers inherited by Stephen when he took the throne were three bishops of England, that doesn't sound too bad until you realise that Bishop Roger had been joined by specifically two other bishops who were the sons of Roger's brother Humphrey. They were his nephews, literal nephews, and not using the term nephew to sideways suggest they were his sons. Basically, at the heart of Stephen's inherited government was a powerful family and cabal of like-minded nepotistic bishops who virtually ran the English state and had enriched themselves during Henry's reign. And so, just on the principle of not having a nepotistic clan of corrupt bishops running the government alone, and ignoring later accusations and evidence suggesting they were supporters of Matilda, Stephen moved against all three men. There were arrests, there was fighting, and it actually started a wave of small rebellions against the king, which broke out in 1139, and Robert of Gloucester was part of this. King Stephen was immediately hard-pushed to deal with this. At one point, having to deploy his wife to take over the running of a siege in Dover while he put down activities in the West Country, and yet the king seemed to be slowly regaining the initiative. As such, when in 1139, Matilda, would-be Queen of England, arrived in Arundel to stake her claim, her prospects were not good. Robert of Gloucester was on the back foot, Bristol being the only bastion still held by him, and Stephen seemed on course to be winning a victory and end the claim of Matilda and her husband, which we'll now call the Angevin faction. Of course, when Matilda arrived, her journey was neither rebellious or illegal. She was a relative of the king, daughter of the late King Henry I. She arrived and immediately received and accepted the invitation of Adelzia, her stepmother formerly, the widow of the late King Henry I, his final beautiful trophy wife, who had, after the king had died, married the Lord of Arundel. Of course, the fact that Matilda travelled over with Robert of Gloucester did send a signal that, you know what, they're not here just to look at the flower arranging. This was the cause of warfare. King Stephen had been hoping to prevent the landing of Matilda, but with that failed, he quickly moved forward towards the castle. Robert of Gloucester fled at once, and Stephen pursued him, leaving a small contingent of troops to besiege Arundel, and this is seen as a traditional start of the civil war that was to follow. Now, as fascinating as the civil war is, and as you can tell, probably I adore the story of the anarchy, we do not need to go into much detail beyond these opening salvos. It quickly became a chaotic affair. The reason for this was simple. Nobody wanted to fight battles. Battles were bad. In a battle, you could not dictate the outcome. You could get injured. You could get killed. If you could, you would avoid a battle. What you would is play chess with real people. The aim of the game is to besiege your enemy's castles, get them to surrender the castles. 
If that's not going to work, then you burn their crops, kill their cattle, despoil their lands, and make it harder for them when you do besiege it to have any stores inside to be able to survive an extended period of being surrounded, with you calling surrender or else. Because of this, the nature of the war saw an awful lot of crop destruction and a scorched earth policy. As one chronicler at the time said, quote, There were many castles all over England, each defending its own district, or rather, plundering it. The knights from the castles carried off both herds and flocks, sparing neither churches nor graveyards, pillaging the dwellings of wretched countrymen to the very straw, unquote. This then caused conditions that had not been seen since William the Conqueror decided to inflict scorched earth policies on the north of England. Famine became very real, very quickly. In 1140, Henry of Huntington had commented upon the situation in verse, quote, Gaunt famine following wastes away whom murder spares with slow decay, unquote. And yet, for all this horror, this was still only the opening salvos of a civil war. The two sides had began testing the resolve of the opponent, on the one hand, the Angevins, Matilda, her half-brother Robert, and their supporters, mostly based in the West Country and the Cotswolds, hoping to gain more followers, while staying in regular contact with their ally, King David of Scotland, and Geoffrey of Anjan, who was now leading an invading force into Normandy. On the other side, you had the Royalists who supported Stephen. He had on paper more support, but that support was often ambiguous. And since battles were comparatively rare and most military operations were sieges, he knew who was going to be stuck at this for a while, and the main enemy bases of Bristol and Gloucester were going to be tough nuts to crack. Still, Stephen himself had some tough nuts to crack of his own. London and Winchester were the cornerstones of his regime. And this leads us nicely to the Battle of Lincoln, which I mentioned a couple of chapters ago. Believe it or not, for such a long-running civil war, this is one of the few battles that took place during the anarchy. Basically, Stephen went up to besiege a castle containing supporters of Matilda, next to the royalist town of Lincoln. All good. And as he besieges it, he hears that a big army was coming to relieve the siege led by his principal opponents, Duke Robert of Gloucester and others. And based on standard tactics and what you should be doing, Stephen should have just lifted the siege and the game of real-life chess would have continued. But he didn't. He stood. And the debate, why the hell did he stand and fight, carries on to this day. And the most compelling reason, I think, is because of something I mentioned all the way back in chapter 55 of this podcast. See, back then I mentioned that during the First Crusade, Stephen of Bois's father, also called Stephen of Bois, had been accused of running away from the siege of Antioch and abandoning the Holy Crusade. And so bad was this insult that his wife had forced him to go on a small separate mini-crusade a year or so later to atone for his cowardice. Now, while I have read several historians suggest that the insult upon Stephen of Bois Sr. was unjust and unfair, and they go into great details that his reputation of being Captain Runaway of the Crusades was just wrong, it doesn't matter. The truth is, Stephen of Bois Sr. had suffered a reputational hit from it, and Stephen of Bois Jr. 
I believe, always had that stuck in his craw. And this, for me, is the most probable reason why King Stephen of England decided he would make a stand at this siege in Lincoln. And here he did make a great account of himself, fighting ferociously until his sword broke. And then he took a battle axe and he fought even more ferociously until that broke. And then he went for another weapon. But despite the ferocity of his attack, Stephen had a rock smashed over the top of his head, was knocked prone and was captured. And thus the Civil War took a total turn. We are now in February 1141. King Stephen has been captured. Like his uncle, Duke Robert of Normandy, when he was captured in 1106, this is it. Duke Robert spent decades languishing in Henry I's castle, only dying in 1134. This was the end of the war. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which we're now coming to some of the final entries in this document, says that when Robert of Gloucester's men seized Stephen, they, quote, took him, for his men forsook him and fled, and they led him to Bristol, and there put him into prison in close quarters. Then was all England stirred more than air was, and all evil was in the land, unquote. And another version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says quite plainly, quote, when the king was in prison, the earls and powerful men expected that he would never get out, unquote. So here we are, 1141. The war is over. In England, the forces of Robert of Gloucester and in Normandy, the forces of Geoffrey of Arjon had effectively won. The supporters of King Stephen now flocked to surrender to Matilda, including in London, Geoffrey de Mandeville, not yet at this moment Earl of Essex, but definitely master of the White Tower of London. In fact, the only apparent holdouts to Queen Matilda seem to have been Arguably the two towns that supported him first, Winchester and London, and those Matilda was making her way towards. The Bishop of Winchester, the king's brother, remember, was pressured to recognise the Empress Matilda as queen publicly. At the start of March 1161, on a cold rainy day, Henry of War did just that, and recognised Matilda as the rightful Queen of England. The next day she arrived in Winchester, and Bishop Henry handed her control of the royal treasury, and a royal clerk gave her the crown. Bishop Henry also arranged for the citizens of Winchester to come out to the marketplace and recognise her as their rightful queen. And then Henry arranged for Theobald, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to turn up, but he wasn't as sure as Winchester was, and negotiations started. Winchester had recognised Matilda as queen. The commune had embraced the real politic of the situation. Soon after, Oxford did, and then Wilton. As Matilda marched, her progress became more like a celebration, and in glory, Empress Matilda made her progress towards London. But even now, at this exact moment, when all seemed lost to the cause of King Stephen, there did remain a few who still held for him, including one remarkable woman, also called Matilda. And yes, this is where we run into one of the most inconvenient realities of life in this era. The need for Normans to name all their daughters Matilda. Because while we have Matilda, daughter of Henry I, marching herself to London to formally be crowned Queen in Westminster, we also have Matilda, wife of Stephen I, who is Queen of England. Two Queen Matildas? How on earth can we tell who we're talking about then? 
One convention is to call one of them Maud, so you have Matilda and Maud, but I dislike that convention, so I'm going to use the other convention, the convention that says you have the Empress Matilda using the title she earned from her first marriage to a German, the daughter of Henry I, and Queen Matilda, Stephen's wife. So we're talking about Queen Matilda. And as I've mentioned previously, she was no shrinking violet. She'd led a siege in Dover, and she was determined to keep the flame of her husband's campaign alive, even in a rather anthropied way. And in this, she was joined by William of Yeap, who had been by King Stephen's side at the Battle of Lincoln, but had managed to escape. Henry of Huntington described the situation as follows, quote, The whole of the people of England accepted the Empress as their ruler, with the exception of the men of Kent, where the Queen and William of Ypres resisted her to the utmost of her power, unquote. Ah, Kent, London's most stubborn and intransigent neighbour, once again displaying that most rebellious spirit it had displayed in Anglo-Saxon times. But while the contested leadership was causing instability everywhere, London was having to come to terms with the fact that it had clearly chosen the wrong side. It was the first place in England to stand by Stephen, and he'd lost. And so the oligarchs of London... They, who we talked about last chapter, they had to make peace with this triumphant empress. It is suggested that some of them saw which way the wind was blowing straight away. Representatives of the Commune of London had attended the gathering in Winchester and had also recognised her as Queen. This delegation also formally requested if King Stephen could be released. They were refused, of course, and seemed to accept this refusal. What does seem to be the case is that they either took or worked in tandem with a similar request from King Stephen's wife over in Kent, but Empress Matilda was having none of it. When the Empress arrived in St Albans, a larger deputation of Londoners attended her and were here to arrange for her formal entry into the city. Such matters did need arrangement in advance. Protocols needed to be right, after all. Everyone wants such things to go smoothly. And so... Probably grudgingly, it must be said, London prepared to welcome the Empress. If you remember a few episodes ago, I described the genuine real politique rules of succession in England in this era. One, act fast, and here Empress Matilda's fast campaign seemed to show that she'd done this. Two, take Winchester and seize the royal treasury, and the Empress Matilda had done this also. And all that remained for her to do were the last two things. Rule 3, take London, and Rule 4, get crowned in Westminster. She was well on her way to do that. And so the Empress Matilda made her way to Thorny Island, the royal centre of power in the region, Westminster. From here, in a short while, she'll probably be crowned the first Queen of England over in next door's Westminster Abbey. And yet it was at this exact moment that Empress Matilda and London began to clash. There are many explanations given, but the most probable one was simply a clash of personalities and culture. Whereas the Empress Matilda was a daughter of Henry I, born of Norman Stock to the King of England, when she'd been young, she'd been married off to a German Holy Roman Emperor. 
during those impressionable years, she had grown up amidst German attitudes towards royalty and high nobility. They were much more formal, much more precise in their need for deference. The fact she retained the title Empress even after her husband had died suggests she rather liked this formal way of doing things, even if the English were certainly not used to it. Empress Matilda, don't forget, had seen her first husband die without children, and not feeling attached to Germany to stick around there, she'd come home, but then promptly been married off to a teenage boy, and soon separated from him to return to her father's court before he forced her to go back. She had reconciled with her younger husband, and they had had children, but there is a hint that at least one of these pregnancies had been very difficult, and maybe this was why she had waited a few years to begin her claim to recover the throne. The Empress Matilda is often presented as haughty and overbearing and an utterly unsympathetic character, but evidence on the ground suggests she wasn't that bad. She did inspire great loyalty from some of her supporters. She had been ignored and rejected as queen by the nobles of England and Normandy, despite their oaths to make her such, so she can be forgiven for bearing a degree of resentment towards the men she was now victorious over. She was accused of being, quote, elated with an insufferable pride, unquote, which makes me ask the question, why was it insufferable? Well, simply, because she was a woman. Men of this time didn't like women to be proud. She is described as a, quote, virago, unquote, and said to have had a deep, masculine voice. But then again, women at this age in any position of power needed masculine features in order that men at this time could make sense of why they were ordering them around. In truth, we know little about the true nature of the Empress Matilda. Only, truly, that she was the granddaughter of William the Conqueror. She was a Norman ruler, tough, ruthless, and dangerous when angry. Had she been a man, no one, and I honestly believe this, would have questioned her right to rule or made comments on her personality. But she was a woman, so everybody did. And this meant she had to be more assertive than a man would be, more willing to speak her mind lest she be spoken over, more demanding of the treatment she should have gained naturally had she been male. By doing this, she could stand as herself, empress and soon to be queen of England. But in doing this, she was also inevitably putting out a lot of noses of a lot of men. Matilda's issues with London began almost as soon as she reached Westminster. It became clear that she wished to impose a tax upon its citizens. Now, while this in and of itself was a bit of a pain, in truth, in all probability, London knew this was coming. Every king of England previously had mostly imposed a regime-aiding tax upon London when they took over. Why should not the first queen of the realm do the same thing? However, it was the way she wanted to do it that immediately caused issues. Matilda wished to revert to the policy of her father. London was no longer to have commune status. That had been the mark of the now-deposed King Stephen, offering commune status to pander to the common folk. She, like her father, and subsequently like her son, saw no need for such things. London would return 
to direct royal control, as it had been for every king since Alfred the Great. Stephen's grand gesture was merely the offering of an unworthy king, seeking to dangle titles like commune to gain the support for a mere brief usurpation. All Empress Matilda was doing was returning the long-existing traditional status quo to the land and to London, allowing its citizens live the way their forebears had lived. But of course, it was not seen like this. Londoners and the many oligarchs I mentioned last chapter had tasted the addictive ambrosia of having their own agency, of ruling their own affairs. They reacted badly to both the demand of cash and the nature of how it would be collected. The Gesta Stefani says, quote, She sent for the richest men and demanded from them a huge sum of money, not with unassuming gentleness, but with a voice of authority, unquote. The Londoners, of course, pleaded poverty, but not without cause. They'd been contributing to the recent costs of the Civil War, Awkwardly, it must be said, paying for Matilda's rival, but also because the fighting had caused large-scale crop shortages due to the sheer number of pillaging and deliberate crop-burning events that had taken place, there was a famine on. London as a city had spent heavily to secure food supplies for itself. They, they were broke. The reaction to London's excuse? Quote, with a grim look, her forehead wrinkled in a frown, every trace of a woman's gentleness removed from her face, blazed into intemperate fury, unquote. Now, the image is probably accurate. I wouldn't call clearly saying, you lot are so full of crap as being intemperate, but there you go. Empress Matilda shouted at the oligarchs, reminded them they had paid huge sums to Stephen, and as such, it was in her mind a very reasonable suggestion she demanded this sum and the way she suggested it. The Gesta Stefani went on to say, quote, The citizens went away gloomily to their homes without gaining what they asked. Unquote. One wonders what was going on in the head of Sheriff Eightpence and his clerk, the young Thomas Beckett. Empress Matilda had on her way to Westminster styled herself the Lady of the English, as well as Empress, and also now began using the term Queen. And as a queen-in-waiting, she had began to copy King Stephen's policies, especially the one that said you take somebody who's loyal to you and you secure their loyalty by giving them a nice shiny title like Earl. And this is why, when Geoffrey de Mandeville had obviously made himself up to be loyal to King Stephen, so much so he'd been given Constable of the Tower of London, he swapped sides, as we said, and it was Matilda who first made him Earl of Essex. I did say last episode that Stephen made him Earl of Essex. Well, he did. He confirmed Matilda's appointment. But to understand that, we need to get to that. And all we need to understand is that right now, in 1141, Empress Matilda made Geoffrey de Mandeville II the Earl of Essex. She also nominated someone to be Bishop of London. But in Kent, the Queen Matilda, Stephen's wife, was playing an entirely different game. And it was not at this stage a game of rebellion, it was a game of damage control. King Stephen had lost, that much was certain. Queen Matilda had few options open to her, indeed almost none. 
Jesus had to look after the two most important men in her life. The first was her husband, Stephen. She had formally requested his release from the Empress back in Winchester, and the implied suggestion was that she was being naive. Yet she recognised the status quo politically. She was intending for King Stephen to enter a monastery, and she may have had grounds. I mean, it must be remembered, Stephen was not some rebel they were holding in chains in Bristol. He was formerly an anointed King of England. That meant he did deserve special treatment. And then Queen Matilda had the issue of the second man in her life, her son, Eustace. Queen Matilda wished for him to hold on to his estates and holdings, if not the title of heir. The Empress Matilda was having none of that. She intended clearly to disinherit Eustace. It is said she had insulted the representatives of the Queen, and this turned the head of Henry of Bois. Bishop of Winchester, the king's brother. It's one thing to agree your brother's cause was a hopeless one, but another to stand by to see your nephew lose his estates. The first sign of his displeasure was that Bishop Henry avoided Emperor Matilda's court for a few days, stewing. Meanwhile, Queen Matilda in Kent realised she had no choice. Diplomacy was getting her nowhere. She had to resort to violence. And from her base in Kent, she raised a large force under William Reap and began to march towards London. Her large army partook off the de jure acts of warfare at this time, pillaging and burning as they went. For all its size, it was certainly not able to assail London, whose mighty walls and river barrier would prevent such a thing. But as they despoiled and burned, it was clear London was not their target. The Empress was. As they marched towards the city, the citizens behind those walls mused upon their situation. They were looking like they were about to lose commune status and pay a hefty fine for this. The Empress was about to rule them with the same brutal authority as her grandfather had. The Angevins looked like they would place London under the thumb. But south of them, beyond the river and beyond the walls, there was an army. By all accounts, there were secret negotiations between the royalist forces and sedition was planned. The story goes that the Empress Matilda was in Westminster, awaiting the submission of London and her eventual coronation with what appears to be great confidence. She was in the royal estates of Westminster, the apartments and the rooms built alongside the great hall constructed by her uncle, William Rufus. Apparently she was reclining upon a couch when she heard something, something unusual. Those around her heard it also. It was the ringing of bells. Her and her court stood and looked confused. And from nearby London came the sound of the ringing of church bells. The bells of London rang out loud and proud, the signal for the rebellion. London citizens took up arms in a way not seen since Ansgar had directed the defense of Southwark back in 1066 and fell upon the Empress Matilda's followers in the city, dealing with them swiftly, and then they opened the city gates, in particular Ludgate. From Ludgate, they would have crossed the River Fleet, an armed mob, bloody and intent, pouring out with speed and fury. Matilda and her retinue panicked. She supposedly fled the palace, finding horses, and her and her closest followers raced across the marshland near Westminster, and then onto the road back to the west. She was no sooner away than the Londoners fell upon the Palace of Westminster 
and when the London mob got to the royal estate and found her gone, apparently they looted and plundered anything not nailed down. London sacked Westminster, and the Empress had fled. They had liberated themselves. Great was the rejoicing. Queen Matilda now entered London, and it seems Henry of War, Bishop of Winchester, was with her, and it suggested that it had been the crucial middleman in the secret negotiations between her and the residents of the city. Queen Matilda was given a warm welcome. The initiative of the Civil War seemed to be turning. Maybe there was hope yet to be found. Royalists began to crawl out from under the stones they'd hidden under, Queen Matilda asking them to join her. Geoffrey de Mandeville, newly established Earl of Essex, was one of the first who did so, swapping sides with enormous alacrity. Clearly, however, with the Bishop of Winchester now in rebellion, along with William of Yeeps leading an army of Kent, momentum had swung back to the supporters of King Stephen. They could not afford to lose this momentum. If the Empress Matilda had fled to Winchester, the next stage of the war was to see them follow. The Empress got to Winchester, and she had obviously heard along the way that the Bishop of the town was now in the force following her. She immediately decided to besiege Bishop Henry's castle that was located within the town of Winchester. But she was suddenly caught out, as Queen Matilda, William of Yeeps and their army, including a large number of Londoners now joining them, turned up and besieged Winchester itself. It was a double siege. Quote, Everywhere outside the walls of Winchester, the roads had been watched by the Queen and the Earls to prevent provisions from being brought in to the partisans of the Empress, unquote. Inside the walls of Winchester, the Empress Matilda and her supporters, who included at this moment of time not just Robert of Gloucester, but also King David of Scotland, began to run out of food. While the besieging army had good and regular supplies coming from London, and they were capturing any of those who tried to escape, usually torturing or killing them. By August the 2nd, Henry of Bois ordered his men, still within the castle within the town, but being besieged by the Empress, to start a fire nearby, to burn as much of Winchester as possible, denying Empress Matilda both shelter and provisions. The fire did break out, and before it could be extinguished, had destroyed a section of the town, including some churches which contained some amazing relics, including a mighty gold cross given to it by Canute. By that September, Empress Matilda was in dire straits, as the army from Kent, supplemented by the men of London, and forces of turncoats like de Mandeville, expanded their control. No relief was coming. The royalist forces began destroying any of her bastions in the surrounding region. They attacked and burned the Angevin stronghold of Andover, the fortified abbey of Werewolf, and so an escape plan was hatched. Roger, Duke of Gloucester, was to mount an attack, a feint, to draw attention away from the Empress Matilda escape. That was the plan. The result was chaos. The Empress did break out on horseback and riding man-fashion, not side-saddle, rode off into the distance. King David of Scotland was captured but escaped and then captured but escaped and then captured a third time and escaped a third time and finally got rid of his armour so he'd not be recognised, finally getting in Gloucester, quote, half-naked, unquote. But Earl Robert was captured. The fighting was a scene of utter chaos. 
the Empress's army broke, knights were knocked from their horses, and the animals themselves ran wildly about barreling into people. Some knights, like King David, threw off their armour and fled for their lives, but many were captured by peasants and beaten up. Robert had been captured, and the leader of Empress Matilda's forces was now in the hands of Queen Matilda. And in all of this, what did the Londoners do? Well, we know exactly what the Londoners in this battle did. By all accounts, the residents of our city fell upon the town of Winchester. They sacked it, this ancient rival to London. They burst into the homes and shops, pillaging anything they could carry and destroying anything they could not. They broke into churches and did the same. We can only guess at the sheer horrors the residents of London inflicted upon their natives of Winchester. We do know that when they left, the army of London was laden down with the spoils of war and captives. London had just used all of this as an excuse to kick the living snot out of Winchester. The rout of Winchester was a huge turning point in the war. Queen Matilda realised that without Earl Robert of Gloucester, her hopes of regaining the throne were lost. She'd come this close, but the fury of London had dashed her dreams, and as they helped themselves to the goods of the citizens of Winchester, the Empress realised her cause had no chance militarily without her most important supporter. And so, after elaborate preparations were put in place, including hostages being exchanged, a complicated prisoner release scheme was enacted. Robert of Gloucester was swapped for Stephen of Bois. Bad feeling and ill-tempered clouded both sides and reduced trust, but the exchange went smoothly, and King Stephen returned to his supporters with, quote, cries of rejoicing and exultation that he was restored to them unharmed, unquote. And as 1141 comes to a close, the residents of London, flushed with their recent acts, would have rejoiced as well. They had not only rejected this empress, they had defended and preserved their rights. They were still a commune, still self-governing and loyal. Their actions had led to the rout of the Empress and the capture of Robert of Gloucester. They'd made a tidy profit by sacking Winchester, and their king was back. Yes, to be sure, the conflict was carrying on. But London had gone from where they had been, very much on the losing side, facing utter defeat, to now, restored, renewed, and vindicated in their faith of King Stephen. London was back in business, and the bells of London rang out once again, rejoicing at the future that now lay in their hands. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll be back next week for another episode. If you did like this episode, please leave a five-star review or a like or a, a, a positive word somewhere as this impresses the algorithms that run podcasts. If you're feeling especially generous, and you can, you could always make a contribution at the Buy Me A Coffee page we have associated with uh, the story of London, and that helps contribute to the running costs of the podcast. Thank you all for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I did enjoy writing it. See you next week. The Anarchy continues. Carnage, mayhem, and a new Bishop of London. Bye.